0: Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 46 called The Sack of Rome. In the last episode we left Alaric the Visigoth on his way back to Rome from Ravenna in AD 410. The Sack of Rome was about to happen but as we know the truth was that Alaric didn't really want to sack it. He was actually more interested in obtaining gold and recognition from the Romans rather than destroying them. But the problem was that while the Romans were willing to pay him, they weren't willing to recognise him and his Goths as a legitimate people within the empire. And the reason for this goes back to Theodosius I's peace treaty with the Goths in 382, when he failed to defeat them in battle and was forced to allow them to settle within the empire, but without Roman citizenship, their being called federati or allies instead. And to understand why Alaric sacked Rome, we need to see things through his eyes. And we need to understand that he was conflicted. On the one hand, he'd been a senior Roman military commander, a magister militum, first appointed as such by the Eastern Empire and then by the Western. But on the other hand, he was still king of the Goths. One historian has argued that Alaric was like an illegal immigrant admitted into the Roman Empire but reviled by the Romans. And I think this really gets the heart of the Gothic problem because they were semi-accepted by the Romans but not really accepted. Stilicho and before him Theodosius wanted to use them for military campaigns but they didn't want to give them any proper recognition as Roman citizens. And this was a big mistake because the Goths, not surprisingly, turned against them, and this is exactly what happened in August four ten when Alaric was exasperated with the Emperor Honorius's refusal to recognize him, and then he was outraged, if you recall, by the surprise attack on him by Sarus, the rival Gothic commander in Honorius's pay. In addition, his attempt to create his own emperor in the form of Priscus Attalus failed to win him any support other than that of the powerless Roman Senate. Finally, he needed to keep his army of followers happy, and they had received no gold or bribes from the Romans since the first siege of Rome ended in early 409. So they needed a payoff, and the sack of Rome was the best way of giving that to them. We have no first-hand accounts of the sack of Rome, and historians are divided between those who believe it was a relatively mild affair and those who think the Goths wrought destruction on a massive scale. Certainly, what archaeological evidence we have doesn't suggest that the city was burnt to the ground or its inhabitants entirely slaughtered. Indeed, it's clear that the great majority of the city's buildings were not destroyed, not least because we can still see some of them today. But this doesn't mean to say that many of its inhabitants were not killed or raped. The sources that remain to us say the story went like this. On the evening of 24th August 410, someone, perhaps vengeful slaves, opened the Salarian Gate, one of the main gates in the Aurelian walls to the north of the city the Goths flooded in. However, our sources are unanimous that Alaric did his best to ensure moderation. He ordered the Goths to plunder, but not to kill. In particular, the two main Christian churches, the Basilicas of St Peter and St Paul, were nominated places of sanctuary where Roman citizens would be safe if they could get them. The Goths, were of course Arian Christians, and although many of the Romans were Nicene Christians and many were pagans, there was at least some sort of religious kindred spirit between the invaders and the invaded. Certainly the sack was mild compared with a later sack of the city by the Vandals in 455, or the utterly brutal sacking of northern Italian Roman cities like Milan 40 years later by Attila the Hun. Nevertheless, the pillage of the city would not have been a pretty sight. The historian Edward Gibbon provides us with a plausible description highlighting that the large slave population in the city must have used the Gothic invasion as an opportunity to get their own back on their masters. Quote, The writers, the best disposed to exaggerate their clemency, have freely confessed that a cruel slaughter was made of the Romans and that the streets of the city were filled with dead bodies which remained without burial, during the general consternation. The despair of the citizens was sometimes converted into fury, and whenever the barbarians were provoked by opposition, they extended the promiscuous massacre to the feeble, the innocent and the helpless. The private revenge of 40,000 slaves was exercised without pity or remorse, and the ignominious lashes which they had formerly received were washed away in the blood of the guilty or obnoxious families. End but the Gothic sack of Rome has become more famous for its clemency than its brutality. In particular, two stories have become well known. One recounted by Saint Jerome is of Marcella, a nun who protested to the Goths ransacking her house that she had no wealth, for she had no need for material possessions, which so impressed them that they took her to the safety of St Peter's. Another, recorded by the Christian writer Zoserman, says that when a Gothic soldier saw a pretty young Roman woman, he, quote, was conquered by her loveliness, end quote, and he felt compelled to escort her to the safety of St Peter's, where he paid the guards to protect her until the danger was over. But the reality for most citizens must have been very different. It's almost certain that a huge amount of gold and silver and other precious possessions were taken from the city's inhabitants. Although the Goths seem to have respected most of the churches, it is recorded that they couldn't resist taking a £2,000 silver chiborium which is a sort of canopy covering an altar, which had been a gift from Constantine the Great. Several large Roman administrative buildings were burnt down, including the Senate House itself, and the Basilicas of Amelia and Julia, which were both exceptionally large buildings. No one came to Rome's rescue. The Italian legions based in northern Italy at Ticinum were still guarding the frontier against Constantine the Third, and they made no effort to move south to confront the Goths. In Ravenna, the story goes according to the 6th century Roman writer Procopius that the feeble-minded Emperor Honorius was feeding his chickens when a eunuch rushed in to tell him that Rome had perished. The emperor looked up in horror and said, and yet it has just eaten from my hands. The eunuch had to explain to him that he was referring to the city of Rome, and not the chicken which Honorius had nicknamed Rome. Apparently Honorius breathed a sigh of relief and said, but I thought my chicken had perished. After three days of looting, Alaric called a halt, and the Goths left the city. Together with their plunder they took Galla Placidia, Honorius's sister, who they treated with great respect as befitted an imperial princess. She would later marry Alaric's brother-in-law, Atulf in 414. But that story, and the far greater story of the battle for control of the Western Empire that would be fought over the next half century, lies with later episodes. So where could the Goths go now? Alaric had destroyed any chances of a peaceful settlement with Honorius, there was apparently dissatisfaction within the Gothic ranks. Although Alaric had delivered the riches of Rome to his followers, they were frustrated with their itinerant lifestyle and wanted to settle down. So he promised them a land of plenty, a land where corn grew in abundance, a land of sunny warmth beside the Mediterranean Sea, a land with civilized Roman cities which they could occupy. He promised them. North Africa. The Goths marched into southern Italy, itself a land of prosperity untouched by war. Our records are thin, but the Goths may well have sacked the cities of Nola and Capua. However, their plans came to nothing, for when they reached the Straits of Messina, the ships they gathered for the crossing to Sicily were wrecked by a storm. The Visigoths were not great sailors, and they turned back, unable even to reach Sicily, let alone North Africa. Then another misfortune hit them. Alaric died in the winter of 410 to 411 of unknown causes. According to the later Romano-Gothic historian Jordanes, his death was untimely, so it seems to have been a surprise. Historians have speculated that it might have been malaria. Whatever the truth, his death, just months after the sack of Rome, was a blow to the Goths, who now lacked a strong leader to replace him. His brother-in-law, Atulf was crowned king, but lacking Alaric's dynamic energy, Atulf led the Goths back north towards Gaul, which they now considered the best location to settle within Roman territory. Alaric was buried, according to Gothic traditions, with a hoard of treasure in the bed of a river which had been diverted temporarily. Once he was placed in his grave, the river was redirected to flow back over it, and to prevent any discovery of his resting place and the treasure contained therein, all the slaves who had dug it were killed. Thus, in rather brutal fashion, ended the story of Alaric the Goth. As for the Roman Empire, while Honorius might have been relieved that his chicken had not perished, most of the inhabitants of the empire regarded the sack of Rome as a turning point. Not for 800 years had Rome fallen to a foreign invader, not since 390 BC when it had been attacked by the Gauls. And even then, the capital had still held out, according to Livy, with the help of its geese who warned the defenders of Gallic attacks. In Constantinople, the first minister Anthemius told the nine-year-old Theodosius II to proclaim three days of mourning. Saint Jerome, one of our main sources for this period, wrote, If Rome can perish, what can be safe? Christians blamed the pagans in the empire, and the pagans blamed the Christians. Erosius, a leading Christian theologian, blamed the impious pagans for the sack of Rome. But the pagan chronicler Zosimus, on whom we rely for much of the history of the early 5th century, blamed the Christians for causing the pagan gods to be rejected. Everywhere, divine vengeance was cited as the reason for the worst disaster to afflict the empire in 800 years. Amidst this confused and vengeful anger surrounding Rome's demise, there rose to prominence one of the Christian Church's most influential thinkers, Saint Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in 410 when Rome was sacked, and he began to write The City of God, a treatise that became foundational for the Christian Church because it established a new way of looking at Rome's relationship with Christianity. This great work would run to 22 volumes and was not completed until 425, but by 413 he'd written the first three books, which put forward the view that the sack of Rome was not a defeat for Christianity, since the Roman Empire was not the same as the Christian Church. This went against much of the thinking of the time, in particular Constantine the Great's linking of Christianity with the office of the Emperor. As discussed in episode 24, much of the appeal of Christianity to Constantine seems to have come from the fact that the early church looked to him as its secular head. This gave him control of the fastest growing religion in the empire, which was a useful political tool. In addition, he probably genuinely believed that this new Christian god was on his side. But central to Constantine's thinking had always been that the church was subordinate to him. As we've heard in previous episodes, this was challenged during the course of the 4th century by forthright bishops like Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan during Theodosius I's reign, and by John Chrysostom, the Bishop of Constantinople in the Eastern Emperor Arcadius' reign. The Christian Church was developing its own identity and Saint Augustine took it a step further by arguing that the sack of Rome in 410 was no disaster for Christianity because it was not, in fact, dependent upon Rome. This was a revolutionary idea at the time when most early Christians argued that it was no coincidence that Augustus, the first Roman emperor, and Christ had lived at the same time. Saint Augustine argued that this was truly just a coincidence, and that the city of Rome and the heavenly city of God existed entirely independently of each other. And the latter was far more important, as he described, quote, The heavenly city outshines Rome beyond comparison. There, instead of victory, is truth. Instead of high rank, holiness. Instead of peace, felicity. Instead of life, eternity. End quote. But for most people, the sack of Rome was a shattering blow. It certainly marked the beginning of the city's rapid decline to becoming little more than a village in the Middle Ages. One historian has estimated that Rome's population fell from around 800,000 in 410 to some 500,000 in 419. Refugees fled the city and flooded into Africa, Egypt, and Constantinople. However, while the Western Empire had been reduced to chaos. It's worth noting that the Eastern Empire was doing really rather well. If you recall, it was in May 408 that the eastern emperor Arcadius had died and was succeeded by his seven-year-old son, Theodosius II. And just at that time in the west, when Stilicho was beheaded and the western empire was subsequently ruled by two incompetents, Honorius and his first minister, Olympius, so in the east a first minister rose to power, who was exemplary in every way. This was Flavius Anthemius, Praetorian Prefect for the East since 404 and prior to which he'd occupied several senior positions in Arcadius's court, including that of consul. He came from a distinguished family and was apparently free of the backstabbing jealousies that dominated the actions of so many of the senior bureaucrats in both the eastern and western courts, and he was actually motivated to do what was in the best interests of the Empire, rather than in his own best interests. Among his first acts was to agree a peace treaty with the Persian King of Kings, Yazdegerd, who was a fairly enlightened ruler, tolerant of Christians and reasonably well disposed towards the Romans. One of the reasons for his willingness to make peace was probably that he was preoccupied by a growing Hunnic threat on Persia's eastern frontier, in the form of the Kidarites, who in turn were being pushed west by another Hunnic tribe, the Hephthalites. The cause of this Hunnic migration into Persia's eastern frontier is now considered to be the same as that which drove other Hunnic tribes west into Europe that is, climate change. However, it's particularly interesting to note that while the Western Roman Empire suffered from the movement of the Germanic tribes west because of the Huns, the Eastern Roman Empire actually benefited quite considerably from the pressure which the Kidarites put on the Persians, since it put a stop to the destructive wars between Rome and Persia, which, as you know from previous episodes, had blighted Roman history so much in the past. Nevertheless, the Eastern Empire still felt threatened by the Huns, and it was Anthemius who responded to this by building one of the most important defensive structures in the history of the entire world, the Theodosian Walls of Constantinople. These replaced the existing walls built by Constantine, none of which survive today. But the new walls were far larger and built nearly two kilometres further west, which almost doubled the size of the city. The story of exactly when and why they were built is still hotly debated by historians. The Theodosian Code says unequivocally that they were completed by Anthemius in 413, but no one knows quite when they were begun, although one inscription uncovered in 1993 suggests it was as early as 404. They were also severely damaged in 447 and hastily rebuilt to fend off Attila the Hun. And historians still debate whether it was at that point that they were further extended. However, it's absolutely certain that most of the walls were being built by Anthemius in the years around 410. So, the question has to be, why then? Well, the historian Peter Heather has put forward the argument that it was fear of the Huns. But I hear you say, the Huns weren't threatening Constantinople at that time, were they? Peter Heather has tried to unravel this, and it's a little bit complicated, but bear with me as I try to explain his viewpoint. The first thing is that there was a well documented invasion of Thrace by a Hunnic leader called Uldin in 408. This was the same Uldin who, if you recall from episode 42, had actually been an ally of Rome's and had defeated and killed the renegade Gothic general Gynus in 400, sending his head to the Emperor Arcadius. However, by 408, Uldin saw an opportunity to attack Roman Thrace. Our source is the chronicler Zosiman, who described a large invasion of Thrace by Uldin, capturing the Roman town of Martis and extravagantly claiming to the Roman ambassadors who met him to negotiate a peace, that, quote, he pointed to the sun and declared that it would be easy for him, if he so desired, to subjugate every region of the earth that is enlightened by that luminary, Historians have assumed, based on Zosimus' description, that this was a major invasion of the Eastern Empire and that this is what prompted the building of the walls. However, Peter Heather's research suggests a different explanation. He believes that Uldin was in fact only a minor Hunnic warlord – and one of many. This is based on the evidence that the Eastern Romans managed to comprehensively defeat his army. As we know, to defeat the Huns was a major achievement, and Heather suggests that this means Uldin was in fact leading quite a small war band rather than an army, and points to evidence suggesting that the Roman victory was actually due to their persuading most of Uldin's followers to work as mercenaries for the Roman army, and then chasing the rest back over the Danube. Uldin then disappears from history. If this is true, then we're back to square one and really no wiser about why Anthemius built the mighty walls of Constantinople. Well, Heather argues that Uldin wasn't the reason, but the Eastern Romans' knowledge that there was a huge force of Huns living to the north of the Danube was. He believes that it was this concentration of Hunnic power, itself the result of migration due to climate change, which also forced Radagaisus's Goths to migrate into Italy and then the Germanic invasion of Gaul in 406 to 407. So Heather speculates that both the sack of Rome and the simultaneous building of the walls of Constantinople both have their ultimate origins in the same westward migration of a huge host of Huns who were politically disunited but still terrifying. It's worth spending a minute on the walls of Constantinople, given their pivotal role in global history. So what was it that made them impregnable for nearly 800 years until 1204, when the Fourth Crusade managed to break through actually not the land walls, but a section of the sea walls? And the land walls, in fact, were only breached by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, when they used cannons to destroy them. Well the answer is that they were a double circuit of walls. In addition they also had a moat and a third small wall behind that. I've visited what remains of the walls today several times and I can tell you what you can still see clearly shows why they were so effective. For the attacker had first to cross the moat and overcome the small wall protecting that. They then had to batter or scale their way through the outer wall before making it to the gigantic inner wall. Both the inner and outer walls had towers, which would have been armed with powerful Roman artillery. Now, if you got through the moat and the outer wall, which virtually nobody did until 1453, you would have been trapped in a gully between the outer and inner walls and subjected to a murderous barrage of missiles from the towers. So, it's absolutely no wonder that the walls were the best defensive system ever built in the ancient world. And that's a good moment to end this episode, with the Eastern and Western empires in such different places. The West, largely overrun by barbarians with rebellion in Britain and Gaul, and a massive army of Visigoths wandering around Italy. In contrast, the Eastern Empire was thriving, with all of its most prosperous provinces safe, such as Egypt, Syria, Cappadocia and the rest of Anatolia. And as we've just said, the growing city of Constantinople was now protected by hugely powerful walls, whereas Rome's single-circuit of walls, built by Aurelian, while still impressive, had proved to be wanting. The Western Empire had passed a point of no return – But the Eastern Empire was only just getting going. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And in the next episode, we'll look at why the Roman army was so ineffective at defending Rome against Alaric. And I also wanted to mention that you can now sign up to my newsletter on my website, which will have an article every month about a thought-provoking question on Roman history. The first one is about the mystery of the Arch of Constantine in Rome. Why does it have no Christian symbols on it when it's commonly believed to commemorate his conversion to Christianity at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge? Find out by clicking on www.nickholmesauthor.com, which should be immediately visible for you in the write-up about this podcast on your podcast app. Thanks for listening and see you next time.